Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at Job chapter three with Dr. Jeff Leonard. Uh, Jeff Leonard is Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies at Samford University. And Jeff, could you tell us a little bit about the classes that you teach here at Samford? Yeah, so um, every student at Samford takes a kind of introduction to the Bible class that we call Biblical Foundations. And like all of the professors in the Braille Department, I have a lot of sections of that. Um, and then for my upper level classes, I basically just sort of work through the Bible. So I have a class called Creation and Covenant that is about the Torah, truthfully, because the Torah is far too much to cover in one semester. It's basically Genesis and Exodus. Um, and then uh, I have another class called Psalms and Wisdom, uh, where we talk mainly about Psalms, Job and Proverbs um, mm -hmm. uh, would be the three big ones there. And then I have another one called Studies in the Prophets, where we not surprisingly, go through the prophets. And then I have a really cool class called Gods and Monsters, which is all about uh, Canaanite and Babylonian uh, mythology and law and how it compares to various passages in the Bible. So, uh, and then of course, I also lead trips to Israel. So we have a, a course called uh, Israel Exploring the Biblical World, where we uh, go all over the, the country and look at sites. Yeah, I've heard some great reviews from students about, well, all of your classes, but those Israel trips are just amazing, the way that you walk them through uh, Israel and help them, the Bible come alive for them as they see the places where these things happened. And uh, so that's really great. And that class you mentioned on God and monsters, uh, gods and monsters, which addresses the kind of ancient Near Eastern background of the Bible. That kind of interest comes out in your research as well. So uh, your new book here, Creation Rediscovered, here it is, um, Finding New Meaning in an Ancient Story, uh, where you're talking about Genesis 1, but then also cre other creation accounts in the Bible and then uh, in other ancient traditions and how they're related to one another. And, and that it's going to come up, I think, as we talk about Job 3 today. The, the other thing that you've written, and you've written a number of articles, but you have an article on Job 3 itself, uh, and which is one of the reasons why we thought of you to come on for this episode. And so we'll talk about that too, as we get to it in the text. But first, Jeff, what first drew, thank you for that. Yeah, segue. you like that segue? Was <laughs> so seamless. <laughs> Jeff, what first drew you to the book of Job? You know, uh, Job is one of those books that uh, I remember, you know, like when I was a little kid and I would be part of a Bible memory association in church and, you know, learning verses from scripture and so forth. And, and Job was a book that, you know, even as a little kid, I remember being attracted to it. The part that I found so interesting was the divine speeches at the end. Because, you know, they're just these majestic kind of passages that, you know, where were you when I did this and when I did that? And it's the kind of thing that like you'd be on a backpacking trip or hiking or something. And those are the kinds of lines that would go through your head. 
As I got older and, uh, you know, eventually started to teach the book of Job, I found those divine speeches to be a lot more problematic, uh, which I'm sure will probably come up over the course of our talk today. But, um, you know, those are actually some of the tougher parts of Scripture. Um, Mm -hmm. While they are majestic, they're also hard, Um, but uh, always have been attracted to to the book of Job. And the truth is, the more difficult Job has become, Probably the more relevant, um, mm-hmm. I think, the book of Job has become for me. I Kohelet and Job, or Ecclesiastes and Job, I think those may well be the most relevant books in all of Scripture for modern readers. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, I mean, we're recording now during the extended coronavirus. You can see, I mean, even in the midst of what we are going through now uh, nationally, but also globally, mm-hmm. uh, the relevance of Job, I think, it's one of these perennially relevant books because it deals mm-hmm. with suffering, of course, which yeah. is a problem we're always going to have with us. But there are times when its relevance comes to the forefront, like the, what we're going through now. Now, the part of Job that we're looking at today is Job chapter three. How do you see Job three fitting into the broader book? You know, honestly, I think that Job three is one of the pivotal chapters of the entire book. It's the chapter that sort of forms the bridge between the prose introduction in chapters one and two, and then all of the poetic dialogues that are going to follow in you know, chapter four and following. And its role is so important because it introduces us to a different kind of Job than the Job that we have met in the, mm-hmm. the prose introduction. You know, that, that Job is so uh, stoic. Uh, he, you know, witnesses the loss of his family and just says, well, you know, uh, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, uh, which is um, that's, that's really something. Um, I think it was Atalia Brenner who said uh, the job of the, the introduction is uh, positively saintly. It's uh-huh. not clear that he's human. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Uh, You know, he loses his own health and he still says, you know, that we receive good things. We receive bad things. He he sits on the ground in silence. That all changes with chapter three. Um, And so chapter three is the text that will finally turn the narrative of the book. And the friends have been more than happy to see Job suffer in silence. They are not going to like it one bit when he begins to lament in chapter three. And that's going to provoke 30 chapters of dialogue. And honestly, it's what eventually will provoke the divine response, you know, beginning in chapter 38. So, Jeff, what's for you is the most difficult aspect of understanding Job chapter three, and how do you kind of deal with it? So, one of the things that drew me to Job chapter three initially was that I was looking at the way that Job laments in chapter three, and the way that Jeremiah laments in a very similar kind of passage, they, they both talk about how uh, they, you know, they curse the day of their birth, they wish they had never been born, and so forth. And I, I tell you, I'm a huge fan of Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah is my favorite prophet. I, I, I never cease to be moved when I read through uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah's uh, laments and these, um, you know, uh, sorrowful passages that he has. And yet, this is one text in which Jeremiah's uh, lament falls so flat hmm. when compared to Job. Hmm. And so, my the issue that I was wrestling with is, okay, what is it that's in Job that makes it so much more powerful, that makes it so much more alive? And uh, being drawn to that you know, question, what I eventually stumbled on was I think it has to do with the way that Job is treating 
the day and the night that he mm-hmm. curses, um, that he's treating those in a different fashion than Jeremiah is. Okay. And we'll get into some of those details as we go through the text. Uh, and that comparison with Jeremiah, it is relevant. We, I think we have to have that in mind when we're reading um, Job 3. But let's start with verse 1 here. So Job 3, verse 1, after this, and that's referring to all that happened in the first two chapters, all that Job has lost. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Okay. Let's look at that word curse because the word curse appears a number of times in chapters one to two. Well, if you're reading in an English translation, it occurs a bunch of times in chapters one and two, but if you were reading in Hebrew, actually it hasn't explain what's going on there, Jeff. So um, there are these places where you have um I don't know, sentiments that just go a little bit farther than I think the biblical authors were willing to go. And so the the idea of putting the words curse God into the text was something that I I think they just said, nope, I'm not going there. So they use a euphemism. And instead of actually saying, you know, if uh, if you take away Job's good stuff, then he will curse you to your face. What the Satan actually says is if you take away all these things, Job will bless you. To your face. And so, well, that would be a fairly idle threat there that, uh, oh, yeah, well, watch this. I'm going to make him bless you. And that's not what really is going on, is that they have used a term that's the opposite of what it intends to get that idea of curse across. So, that's what we read several times in Job chapters one and two. He doesn't actually say curse him, but that's what he means, is that if you take away these things, then uh, Job will curse you. Now, when we get to Job chapter three, that cursing language actually does come out. The key, though, is Job doesn't actually curse God. Mm-hmm. If Job were to curse God, I, I think that uh, Satan would win the bet. And at least by my reading of Scripture, I, I don't really think that's one of the options, literally, uh, for how this can work. So uh, it's important that Job is going to curse, but he's not going to curse God. He's going to curse the day of his birth and the night of his conception. But is that just letting Job off on a technicality? I mean, is, the cursing <laughs> is still there. He seems pretty angry at God when we read this chapter. The fact that he curses the day of his birth versus God himself, is that just semantics? It shows a bit of respect, though, doesn't it? Like, I'm not going to be so brazen as to curse you to your face, God, but maybe there's another way sure around it. sure seems like he's stepping <laughs> right up to the edge here. What do you think, Jeff? Well, I think he is stepping right up to the edge. And I actually think that's pretty important because Job's language towards God in the book is going to be, frankly, shocking um, in some places. You know, in Job chapter nine, it's it's one passage I have here. Uh, Job says, uh, I, I think this is really the nadir of his suffering here. He says, it is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the eyes of its judges. If it's not him, who is it? Hmm. That is bold language. In fact, I think that's bolder than anything that we find even in the Lament Psalms. Uh, One author has said that this is an example of uh, a certain kind of lament that goes too far to be part of liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of like Rebecca's uh, lament when she is, you know, in the throes of labor and she says, if it's going to be this way, let me die. 
Um, even Jeremiah's curse the day of, of his birth. Uh, those are passages that are they're authentic expressions of lament, but probably went too far to be incorporated into um, corporate worship. And so, but what, what they say is that, you know, while it's not okay to curse God, it is okay to lament. And it is okay to lament as honestly as the lamenter feels. Hmm. And so if Job is in this position where he really does uh, question God's divine justice, then it's appropriate to say that he questions God's uh, divine justice. After all, all that a lament is, is saying out loud what you already feel in your heart. Right. So if you uh, don't say it, it doesn't mean that you didn't feel it. Um, right. And so by getting it out, uh, you know, the way I would say concerning the lament Psalms is what their function is, is you, you put it out on the table so you can finally deal with it. Lamenting is different than cursing, though. Uh, when you curse someone, you're writing them off. You are, you know, setting them aside and you're no longer lamenting to them. You're just dismissing them. And right. that's something that Job never does. Job continues to go after God all the way through the book. So the curse, he is cursing the day of his birth, but that curse is playing a part in a lament. So he's a, he's a bigger goal here, which is to deal with God. And That's the right. curse of the day of his birth is a part of that. And what we see throughout this chapter, really what we see throughout Job in his speeches in the book is he's constantly upping the ante, right? He's reaching for anything that he can across scripture, across the ancient world, across rhetoric and literary abilities, the literary abilities that he has to express the extent of his suffering and anguish. And so we see this in verse three, so he's cursed the day of his birth, but he doesn't let go of that day. In verse three, he says, let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man child is conceived. Verse four, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. Now in verse three here in the NRSV, uh, day and night are in lowercase, but you suggest in this article that I already mentioned that they should be capitalized. And why is that? And how is that an example of the way that Job is reaching for whatever imagery he can to intensify his curse here? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I argue concerning Job's uh, cursing of day and night is that the curses are too strong. So to go back to that Jeremiah passage that, uh, you know, we've mentioned in that text, you know, Jeremiah says, oh, curse the day of my birth. But then he quickly sort of switches over to just say, uh, let the man who announced my birth, you know, be cursed and so forth. He, he uh, quickly steers away from the actual day. Well, Job does something different. Job is focusing on the day and night, and he goes after that day and night with, with such an intensity that it seems like it breaks the bounds of mere personification, mm -hmm. that he there's a kind of venom and vitriol that's there that's too strong for just, you know, certain periods of time. And so what I argue Job is doing is that he's tapping into some sort of historical mythology that would have been, you know, perhaps in Israel, but certainly in the cultures that were around Israel, where day and night were treated as actual uh, deities. And so if you, if you go to Greek literature, for example, in uh, Hesiod's Theogony, there's this passage in which uh, nukes, which is uh, night, 
passes her daughter Himera uh, on the threshold each morning as the you know one retires and the other one goes out to do her her service of the day. If there's the the story of Phaeton when he goes and uh, you know visits his father Phoebus, it's the story where he borrows the chariot and Zeus has to eventually you know cast him out of the sky. Well, surrounding Phoebus are gods of different time periods like day. If you go to uh, Canaanite mythology, you have uh, uh, dusk and dawn and, and day. All of these are deities. In Mesopotamia, uh, there's this uh, passage called Maklu. It's a set of witchcraft texts. And the calls upon the Ilani, uh, Ilani Mushiti, which are the gods of the night. So these were entities in the cultures around Israel. And I think Job knows that. So what Job is doing, or the author of Job, is he's taking these uh, deities that by the time we're in Israel, they've basically been demythologized, they've been naturalized, they're just time periods, but they carry some baggage with them. And so Job is kind of reopening that baggage. Um, He's not just uh, personifying dead entities. What he's doing is he's resurrecting formerly living entities and going after them as if they're actual uh, deities themselves. So uh, there might be, just to take a modern parallel, might be a little bit like Nike, right? So Nike is this is it a god or goddess of victory? Uh, but to I think know it was mainly that, tennis use of victory uh, is the, <laughs> the um... <laughs> right. But the Nike brand right draws right. on that that de- this deification of victory to get those kind of ideas associated with itself, right? So the, the you know people don't who buy Nike shoes they don't actually believe in this Greek god, but that informs what you're supposed to associate with their, their brand. Uh, that's so exactly that's, right. that's going on there. Yeah. And I think you can even see that like in, in our culture uh, today, you know, we uh, we're, we're generally monotheistic, you know, at the most, um, but there are some entities that surround us that still carry with them a kind of livingness. <laughs> the, the, the sea is the perfect example that, you know, the sea is nothing but a big body of water. But few people look at the sea as nothing but a big body of water. It has a personality. It has a character. It's the kind of thing that you you feel like if you're at a storm at the beach or you're out at sea, that it, it has its own sort of will and can come after you. Well, this was something that is really a vestige of the way we've always looked at the sea. The sea, I mean, this is the kind of topic that I talk about in my book that you mentioned. The sea was something that was living and active. It was a deity that God would fight against. And so it's something that sort of still carries, you know, to use that phrase again, carries the baggage with it of its, you know, formerly having been alive. And I think that's what Job's doing in Job chapter three. Jeff, in uh, chapter three, verse 11, we get this curse language. And so let's take a look at that a little more closely. It begins, verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? And as you mentioned earlier, Jeremiah says something very similar in chapter 20. He says, cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. So it seems like there's this kind of rhetorical technique in the Hebrew Bible shared by both Jeremiah and Job, where the person expresses a desire not to be born and 
why? What's the purpose of this function? What's the purpose of expressing this desire not to be born? Is it functioning in a particular way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where his uh, his rhetoric is at its most intense, because you've got this image of day and night as almost as if they are soldiers who are supposed to be tapped to go and conduct a certain mission. And so there's a day that's in reserve. It's supposed to be set free to go and be that day to enter into service. And Job says, I, I want them cursed. I, I don't want that day to ever see daylight. I want that night to be held on to so that it, it hopes for dawn, but never gets it. And he's cursing the day of his birth, the night of his conception, because they had the temerity to let him be born. Hmm. Why this is so upsetting to him is because Job is looking at his life and essentially saying to God, God, if this is what you had in store for me, why let me live at all? What is the point of my life if it is going to be nothing but unremitting suffering? God, you could have just killed me. You could have never let me have been conceived. You could have just left me in the womb so that I died there. And if that were the case, I would be asleep. I would be at rest. I would be free from all of the kind of suffering and pain that I'm going through right now. God, if if this is my life plan, then why? Why would you let me be born at all? I think Job is, he's reached the point where he's despairing that anything is ever going to change. I think this is actually one of the places where the book, the poetic part of the book, taps back into the prose part of the book. Because when you're in the prose, the the last section of the prose is where the friends are sitting down with Job and they, you know, they they throw dust in the air and they sit on the ground in silence. And it says they do this for seven days. Well, the, the key is if you're Job and the friends in the midst of those seven days, you don't know that it's only going to be seven days. From your perspective, you know, to bring in the pandemic, it feels like it will never end. (laughs) Two weeks to flatten the curve now seems like an entire lifetime left of being flattened. And so it, it just seems like it will never stop. And Job has finally arrived at the point where he says, I don't I don't see how this ever changes. God, if this is all that there is in store for me, I don't understand why you let me live at all. Why not just kill me at birth and get it over with? And I could at least have some rest. But on the other hand, uh, I mean, I can see what you're saying there, but he is saying this stuff out loud. I, I mean, I think we can assume that he thinks that God is listening to him. And I wonder if the fact that he's saying it reflects the fact that he does think his situation maybe could change if God would just understand how bad his situation is. I mean, an analogy I might use is the toddler who holds his breath to try to get his parents to give him what he wants, right? The, the, the toddler doesn't actually want to die. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't make any sense to die to get that popsicle or lollipop or whatever it is, but you, he wants to press the issue to the point where the parent responds in the way that the toddler wants to. Could that be another way of reading the rhetorical function of this? Yeah, I, I, I don't uh, I don't question at all that there's that component to it, because oftentimes the most desperate circumstances leave us grasping for straws uh, rhetorically. 
And, you know, as you mentioned, Joe, boy, he just goes for everything that he can as some way of getting God's attention. And I, you know, I, I can, for my students, I compare it to that time when you wanted to ask your parents for something that you knew they weren't going to grant. And so you, you marshaled 12 different arguments, you know, and had them all kind of outlined and you were going and each more desperate than the last. Well, Job does this. I mean, yeah. sometimes what Job's argument is, is I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. Sometimes his argument is, well, no one's completely innocent, but I never did anything to deserve this. Right. You know, the, the scales of justice are not being balanced here. Sometimes his argument, and I actually think this is one of his most convincing uh, rhetorical moves, is to say to God, stop picking on me. Yeah. And I'm so small. What could I possibly do that could uh, affect you? You know, what what to an elephant is a mosquito is his, you know, kind of, uh, you know, argument here. He says, God, I, I, I can't do anything to you. Why are, do you keep coming after me? Just leave me alone. And so I think that this is another one of those sort of rhetorical flourishes where he's what he's trying to say to God is, God, stop. Stop what you're doing. But, you know, somehow you have to um, appeal to emotion. And so how is it that he can get God to feel what he's feeling? Well, his way is to say, God, I I wish I had never been born. I, I wish that you would just kill me and get it over with because death would be better than what you're going for. Now, I think in an ideal world, what Job would wish is not that he die, but that his suffering be relieved. But he's willing to go so far as to say, God, I I want this to stop and I would rather be dead than do this. And, you know, Job's not the only person to say this. The Israelites in the wilderness, you know, on the one hand, we're not really fans because they're always complaining. On the other hand, you know, sometimes you go, God, I'm just thirsty um, and I want some water. And their their method of arguing is similar to Job's. They say, would that we had died in Egypt because we're about to die. And, yeah. and well, that doesn't really make sense. I wish we had already died because we're about to die. But when we're driven to extremes, logic isn't always, you know, at the forefront. What he's really trying to do is to get God to feel what he's feeling. God, I'm dying here. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to stop. Yeah. And uh, listeners, we will have Trimper Longman on to talk about Job's complaints. And we, we dig a little bit deeper into the is there a distinction between the Israelites yeah. in Exodus and Numbers and what Job is doing? Because it seems like one of them is bad, but God seems to approve of what Job is doing. So what's what's going on there? So you can listen out for that episode coming out soon. But speaking of the extents to which Job will go, he goes even further than just wishing that he would die. There are some indications here that uh, he's wishing that all of creation itself would be unmade. And there's this great article by Michael Fishbane where he, I don't know if he was the first to discover this, but he lays it out in a really clear way that you can notice these connections with Genesis 1, the creation account in Genesis 1, all the way through these verses. So we've already talked about the mention of day and night, and then in verse 4, light and darkness. And then in verse eight, we've got the sea and the sea monster, the Leviathan that's mentioned there. Verse 11, we've got the creation of humanity, which Job is talking about his own birth. And then even verse 13, where he says, now I would be lying down and quiet. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest, right? That's the, the seventh day there. So do you agree with Fishbane that Genesis one is in the background here? I mean, you've thought a lot 
about Genesis 1. Uh, so uh, I'm holding up your book for those who can't listen, uh, who can't see because they're listening in. Um, so what do you think uh, is going on there with that connection with Genesis 1? Yeah, I think Fishbane is absolutely right on this score. You know, uh, creation forms the substructure for so many different passages in scripture, uh, you know, whether it's Jesus walking on the sea or calming the winds and the waves, those are texts that just tie directly back to how the Bible treats creation. I mean, Genesis 1, you know, begins with the water and darkness. The next to the last passage in the Bible, Revelation 21, is the passage in which it says, I saw the new heavens and the new earth, and there was no more sea. It's literally from cover to cover in the Bible, this, you know, kind of creation motif. And there are certain places where uh, the way that creation is uh, echoed is through what we would call a heptatic structure. In other words, a, a seven-part structure like the seven days of creation. One of the places you can see that most clearly is Psalm 104, because this is a passage that just says in poetic form what Genesis 1 says in prose, or you know, albeit a very elevated style of prose. So in Genesis 1, it's let there be light. In Psalm 104, it's you are wrapped with light as with a garment. And it you know continues that same kind of idea all the way through. Well, in this passage, Fishbane picks out the fact that there are these seven, what they call optative verbs, these sort of hopeful verbs of things that uh, Job would like to happen. Well, what Job basically would like to happen is the undoing of creation. There's this, uh, you know, very important line where it says um, that, you know, he wants to, uh, you know, stir up the sea and rouse Leviathan. Well, rousing Leviathan, this is almost certainly tied into this idea that was, you know, a sort of mythological trope in this area, that Leviathan was this dragon that would come up and eat the sun. In other words, to, to destroy creation itself, I, I, I wrote down a line from Fishbane. He says that Job stands on the rim of the universe and invokes the annihilation of all. I mean, <laughs> This is Job saying, you know, if I'm going down, I want to take the whole thing down with me. Um, so right. if, you, if you've seen the movie Tenet, for example, I won't uh, spoil it because it's a little bit too recent for uh, you know, everyone to have seen it. But there's this motif in there that if I go, everything goes. Right. And I, I think Job is saying my suffering is so great that I'm willing to unravel creation itself if that's what it takes to make it stop. But why go that route? Like, mm. why not just say, let me be done, right? right? Let me die. Why, why would he go to the full extent, let all creation be doomed and, and unraveled into, you know, decreation? You know, this gets into an area that, you know, I'm thankful that I've never had to go through this. But, um, you know, you, you read just these just heartbreaking stories of people who've actually had to go through physical torture. And the, the challenge of physical torture is that everybody breaks. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. There's, there's no one who ultimately is able to endure the kind of inhumanity that we can inflict upon other people. Um, and I, you know, I remember hearing uh, John McCain talk about how he just he felt to you know, his dying day the shame of the fact that he couldn't withstand it. And so he broke and he said these things. And in those moments of torture, you're willing to divulge secrets that you know are going to hurt your country, your 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 fellow soldiers, you know, your family, whatever it is, because you you're at the point where you you've broken and you can't withstand it. 
well, what do you do if you're Job and your torturer is God? This is where you're in a place where you, you can't, you know, just look at the person who's captured you and is doing the torturing and say, well, they're evil. And I, you know, I just wish they would die when you are, are, are suffering in a way. And Job never suggests that anything or anyone is responsible for his suffering other than God. You know, he just goes straight to the source and says, God, you're doing this to me. What is his escape from that? He yeah. never contemplates suicide, seemingly. I, I think that was what Job's wife was encouraging him to do, and he refused. Even in this passage, he says, I, I wish that I were dead, but he doesn't take matters into his own hands. So Job is stuck. Hmm. He's not willing to commit suicide, but he can't get free hmm. of the person who, in another passage, he will talk about, you know, uh, prowls like a lion after me or shoots his arrows into me. Where does he go? And I think... When God is the one inflicting this, what is it as the substitute for God? It's God's creation. And he's willing to undo that whole creation because he can't undo God himself as his way of getting escape from it. Hmm. Yeah. Now, you just talked about Job not contemplating killing himself, but he does contemplate death here. We see uh, in verse 13 and following, he says, so if he had died at birth, now I would be lying down and quiet. I'd be asleep. Then I would be at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuild ruins for themselves or with princes who have gold or fill their houses with silver. And then jumping down to verse 17, there the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the greater there and the slaves are free from their masters. What is he describing here? What is this place where everybody's resting and it seems like everybody is equal. Uh, what is this? Well, I, I think it highlights one of the dilemmas that we have uh, when we're reading the Hebrew Bible is that it's very hard not to read your current beliefs back into the biblical text. Um, it's sort of like once you've You've seen a movie that's very suspenseful, but you figure out what the trick is at the end. It's hard to unsee that right. all along the way. Uh, you yeah. watch, uh, you know, uh, uh, The Sixth Sense or something right. like that, yeah. and you, you can't quite watch it the same way twice. Yep. <laughs> well, the the way that, uh, in, at least in my theological understanding, that that God uh, brings His people along theologically is that He does it slowly. And so we don't get everything, you know, all at once, but there are certain theological ideas that develop over time. Monotheism, for example, that we move from this idea that God is, you know, who is like you, O, o Lord, among the gods? You know, there's other gods there, but our God's the greatest to eventually I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Strict monotheism. But one of the areas where that plays out is in their vision of the afterlife. When you are in the Hebrew Bible, for the most part, there doesn't seem to be a conscious, certainly not a differentiated between righteous and unrighteous afterlife. That people feel like when they die, they just go to sleep. Um, there are all of these passages that you can look at, you know, you will seek me, but you won't find me because I will be no more. Or Psalm 88, you know, do the dead, you know, praise you is the way that the psalmist puts it there. It seems like for most of the Hebrew Bible, that people understood that when they were gathered to their fathers, it just meant that they're gathered to the grave and that's where they literally rest in peace. Yeah. So they don't have a fully formed notion of the afterlife. And I, 
I think you can certainly see that in that Job doesn't make any distinction between the fate of wicked people versus good. You know, there the wicked cease their troubling, there the, the slaves are at rest, the masters are at rest, everybody's just asleep. Yep. It will take some time before this notion of a, a more fully formed afterlife and an afterlife that distinguishes between uh, righteous and unrighteous comes about. And, and truth be told, I, I think the book of Job probably plays a part in the development of that. Um, however much chapter 42 tries to restore to Job, uh, you know, some of the things that he lost before, there's really no way in this life that all of the scales of justice are being balanced. Yeah. And because we hold fast to the notion of God as a God who's just, the way that our theological system developed was to say, if God isn't justifying everything in this life, it must be that he's going to do that in the world to come. Um, and so the afterlife, in, in many ways, is a strong statement about a conviction in God's justice that, you know, in time, even if not in this lifetime, God is going to make all things right. So that's the idea, I think. Yeah. Great. Uh, Jeff, in verse 23, uh, Job uses the language of being fenced in. So while he's cursing the, the day and the night, he says, why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? Now we see that similar language in Job chapter one in the prologue, when God kind of parades uh, Job before uh, the Satan and uh, describes how Job is so blameless and upright and one who fears God. The Satan then responds in chapter one, verse 10. And the Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? So should we read these two things together? And how does the fencing language in chapter one um, inform how we read the fencing language in chapter three? Yeah, you know, this is really part of a much bigger issue. And that is, what's the relationship between the prose, prologue and epilogue? And all of the poetry that we find in the middle, you know, you get a, various different opinions among scholars about, well, you know, there was a prose tale first, uh, or there was the poetic dialogues first, and the other part is secondary. And, I, you know, my own take on the book is that Job is meant to be read as a parable. It's hard for me to completely separate the prose from the poetry when it comes to the telling of that story, that, that whether the prose preexisted the dialogues or not, the way that they have been written, they've been tied together. And I, the example that you use there of the fencing in, I, it's a perfect example of this, is that, you know, the, either the, um, the prose has responded to the, the poetry mm -hmm. by using this figure or vice versa, but there are all of these little interconnections back and forth that say that whoever finally put them together tied them together um, so that they fit. It's not an artificial kind of connection. It's a deliberate and, uh, you know, what we would call it interbiblical illusion, rich uh, sort of uh, connection between those. So the idea works, I think, really interestingly then, right? Because in, in chapter one, uh, the Satan is saying that, look, God, you fenced him in to protect him. Yep. Now Job is saying the opposite. Oh, you, you've fenced me in to bring me harm, yep. basically, right? It's like the fencing works in two different ways. And, you know, that sort of uh, ironic use of a figure like that is not limited just to the, you know, the fencing in. Uh, Job does this with Psalm 8. 
or at least this this line that appears in Psalm eight may have just been part of another kind of liturgy where, you know, we're all familiar with the verse that says, "Oh, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, what are human beings that you consider them?" Uh, and Job is going to take that line and say the same thing, but in the opposite way. It says, "You know, what are mortals that you make so much of them? Visit them every more, uh, moment." He's like, basically, God. Leave us alone if right. this is the way that you're going to treat us. And so that kind of ironic inversion of something that that once was good, but now is bad, I, I think that actually occurs quite a few times uh, hmm. in Job's laments. Yeah. And to get back to the rhetorical purpose of mm-hmm. this kind of, I would call it a parody, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Job could be, or the author is trying to help us think about, I mean, I think with the the Job 7, Psalm 8, 1, Job has this in mind and we're supposed to catch this, which is, yeah. Psalm 8 is describing the way things should be. <laughs> and Job is using that language, twisting it around to say to God, that's not what I'm mm-hmm. experiencing, right? I'm not experiencing a God who cares for his creation and humanity. Instead, I'm experiencing a God who's oppressing mm-hmm. humanity. Uh, so the way things are supposed to be is that God is supposed to protect those who are righteous, right? He's supposed to fence them in like we saw in chapter mm-hmm. one. But what Job is saying here is whatever fencing is happening is just a <laughs> fence of oppression is right. all that I'm experiencing. That's not the way things are supposed to be. Right. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, Job's uh, response when he says, uh, shall we receive the good from God and not the bad? Well, that's a very pious statement uh, when you're in chapters one and two, when he's in chapter nine and it says it's all one, you know, that God treats the wicked and the righteous the same way. You know, if if it's not God who's doing it, who is it? Well, that's not a pious statement uh, in that passage. It's a similar sentiment, but it's it's turned on its head uh, to say that this is a lack of justice. This is not really the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I I'm not entirely convinced that the Job's, uh, Jobin responses of chapter one and two are authentic responses. I, I think Job's in denial to some degree in those passages, and it, it takes the passage of time before his true feelings finally come out to say, no, but it does. It's not supposed to work like that. You're not just supposed <laughs> to get some second. good stuff and some bad stuff. Um, and so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, my, I mean, my reading of those passages is similar, though. Maybe it's more that that's his aspirational, like that's what he would like to believe in this moment. Uh, but then as he dwells in this moment, it becomes much harder for him to hold to that belief, which I think is similar yes. to what you're saying. All right, well, let's get to the end of the chapter here. Uh, in verse 25, he says, truly the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. Did Job have some kind of premonition that this was going to happen to him, this completely unprecedented thing that that actually does happen to him? How should we understand this verse? You know, I don't know if premonition is the word that I would use, that he he sort of sees it coming, um, that he was, uh, you know, worried about this, and sure enough, it happened. But at the same time that I, I wouldn't use the word premonition, there is an element of this. If you think about Job's conduct in chapter one, you know, when, when they're introducing Job, it says that, oh, he's got all of these possessions and so forth. So he's the greatest man of the East. And then it begins to talk about how, uh, how righteous a figure he is. And it says, you know, the, those four statements, he's upright, blameless, fears God and turns away from evil. It says this repeatedly in there. And the one of the illustrations of his piety is that it says that his 
he has his seven sons and they would go, you know, to each son's different household and they would, you know, have their parties that were there. And after the party, it says that Job would offer sacrifices on their behalf. And it says that his, his logic is, who knows, they may have cursed God in their hearts and sinned against him. You know, there's an element in there of Job feeling as if it, it wouldn't take much and all of this could just fall apart. And so there's this, you know, Job is, he's so pious, but part of his piety is, is building his own fence in some ways of, of trying to, you know, uh, store up for the future, this piety that's there so that if they do something wrong, it won't all come crashing down. And I, I think maybe there is that element in there in Job 3, when Job is saying, what I feared, not, not, not exactly a premonition, but what I always worried about was that uh, having lived a life of such blessing would come crashing down. It has happened to him. And, you know, he, he talks that way in a, another passage when he, he looks back so longingly at what his life used to be like. And I, I always think of Tevia when Tevia is talking about how if he were a rich man, you know, that he would have <laughs> this spot in the synagogue and that, you know, uh, he could give an answer to this eye-crossingly difficult question. And nobody would care if it were wrong or right because he's a rich man. And, and Joe is a little bit like that. Yeah. And I think, I think it's chapter, chapter 29, 29, yeah, yeah. when he, he shows up and he says, oh, I remember when I would go to the gate and, and they would move aside and give me the place of honor. He's kind of looking back wistfully at what it used to be like, and it's all fallen apart. And yeah. I think that's, uh, that's what he's talking about there when he says, what I fear has come to pass. You know, the very thing that I was worried about. Yeah, sure enough. That's what happened. Yeah. Well, Jeff, drawing on the uh, genre that uh, biblical scholars are very familiar with, uh, which is the genre of the blurb, you know, when you pick up the back of a book and you see, oh, look at all these big names who have given their highest recommendations and glowing endorsements of that book. Well, we ask each one of our guests to give us a blurb. You could give us a blurb of a book, but it could be a blurb about uh, some new hobby you've picked up or some movie you've watched. It could be about anything. If there is one thing that uh, our listeners you know, they were to pick up and hear, oh, wow, a blurb from Jeff Leonard about that. What would be that blurb? Now, while, you know, while he's thinking of his blurb, okay. I've got his book okay. right here. And it's got a number of great blurbs on the back here, including from Trimper Longman and Brent Strawn, both guests on our show. Okay. Any superlative uh, adjectives? Oh, there? look at, listen to Brent. Brent is a great blurber. So another book on the Bible, creation and science? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then he says, yes, in a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Leonard displays deep learning and a deft pen, thorough control of the biblical and ancient Near Eastern material, not to mention pop culture. We've seen a little bit of that. Tenet is, I just have to say, Jeff, um, you did mention Sixth Sense, which, you know, one of the knocks on professors is that all of our pop references are what, like 20 or 30 years old, but Tenet just came out like last year. So there you go. Um and pedagog pedagogical genius as he covers a veritable A to Z on creation in Genesis 1 and beyond. The result is no mean feat. Oh, wow. With Leonard as our guide, we really do find new meaning in an ancient story. Wow, that is the, the perfected blurb. I mean, right uh, yeah. That's... So, Brent has perfected the blurb, and I hope I've embarrassed you completely, Jeff, <laughs> by reading that. Um, do you have a blurb for us for something that you would recommend? It just saves me from having to shamelessly recommend that devilishly handsome 
and completely erudite author of that book. I, you know, so uh, whoever he may be. So, you know, so I'll give a biblical studies one and a non-biblical studies one. Uh, for biblical studies, uh, and particularly for the book of Job, I can't recommend any book more highly than uh, Samuel Ballantyne's book, Have You Considered My Servant Job? So, uh, as someone who, as as Brent said, uh, likes pop culture, uh, but uh, but also likes the Bible, what uh, what Ballantyne does is he takes every character in the Book of Job and then traces out how they've been understood over time. So he'll look at say how the you know these uh, early uh, post biblical Jewish books like Jubilees or something like that will look at some figure, how uh, the New Testament looks at it, how uh, the uh, the Church Fathers or the Crusaders or you know even up to the, the modern period would look at it, it is it displays a breadth of understanding and knowledge about uh, you know both literature and film and you name it that is it's shocking to me. In fact, uh, I, I was asked to review the book for uh, the Society of Biblical Literature. And when I finished before the review had come out, I sent Dr. Ballantyne an email and said, I, this is terribly unprofessional, but this is the best book I've read in a decade. And I, I'm humbled, uh, you know, at how good it was. So it's can't recommend that highly enough on, on my more pop culture and uh, not 30 years old, thank you very much, uh, kind of reference. Uh, huge fan. My, my son, Elijah, pointed me to this one of uh, the movie Arrival. Uh, Arrival is a magnificent movie and actually taps into uh, some of the issues that the book of Job deals with. Because uh, the, the key issue that you're wrestling with if you're watching the movie Arrival is if you, um, if you know what's in store and it's bad, would you still go through with it? Would mm-hmm. you still, you know, be willing to uh, to go through that if you knew what what the end was going to be? Uh, and you know, to some degree, I, I think that's where Job is: is right. that Job is wrestling with that issue of is it worth hanging on uh, because of how bad things have gotten? So, could not recommend the movie Arrival uh, any more highly. It's really quite good. Right. Well, thank you, Jeff, so much for taking the time to share with us uh, your thoughts on Job chapter three. And for you listeners, if you've been inspired by hearing these blurbs and you'd like to practice writing some blurbs, you know, recommending things, let me suggest a great place where you could do that practice. You could go to iTunes and you could put in a rating (laughs) and a review for this podcast. And it could be an opportunity for you to practice the kind of effusive praise that we've just heard. Lots of superlatives. Yeah, superlatives. I mean, most blurbs have a, a lot of superlatives, yeah. you know, like, and they're always they're always positive. Always. Yes, po- always right? You don't positive. see a negative no, blurb. No, so that's no. where you could practice. Usually um, accompanied with five stars. Yes. Right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Five stars can recommend. Yeah. We wouldn't uh, want you to blurb if it's four stars. Well, that wouldn't be a good blurb, no. right? We're practicing like you've got to go yeah, almost the over the top. That's right. Um, so. We, we talked about, you know, Job got all the way up to the edge, right? Right. So, right. I mean, if you want to get right up to the edge of complete superlative praise, yes. the blurb is the place to do that. Even and maybe go over the precipice. <laughs> <laughs> you just reach for anything in creation and mythology, any of that. Yep. You could do that. That's yep. just an idea, an yep. idea for you. Um, you can also share this with others um, and, this, and let them know about uh, the greatness of I mean, not not of us at no, all. no uh, but of Jeff uh, and, and his yeah, contribution right. and his thoughts yeah. Uh, yeah in this time so thanks again Jeff thanks all of you for listening and until next time take care the two testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies 
Thanks to Jill Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum for their help with production, editing, and promotion. Thank you.